Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday together with our beloved brothers and sisters in Christ to corporately set ourselves under the means of grace, to hear the word, to fellowship, and to pray, and to exhort one another and encourage one another and comfort one another with the truth of the gospel. Thank you for that, Lord. And we love just everything you've provided for us in the church that we might fellowship around our common salvation. We pray for the dear saints around the world that listen to this, uh, many of whom don't have the fellowship that they would like and need. We pray for them that you would bless them and help them also uh, grow in grace as they hear the Word of God taught. And Lord, we pray for our church service this morning. We pray that you would bless us and may your Word uh, go forth with clarity and authority and do what you sent it to do, and may we worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this morning, we're back in Second Corinthians, and we're in chapter 7 and verse 10. Two weeks ago, when I was here, we talked about the topic of repentance. Repentance. And if you remember, we went into Jeremiah 31 and sort of laid the groundwork from the Old Testament about the biblical idea of repentance. And I believe that I referenced this, but um, one of the better discussions of repentance and what it actually means that I've seen is in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament under the Greek word for repentance, metanoeo, and that essay that traces the concept back into the Old Testament points out that repentance in the Bible is really conversion. It's the concept of conversion. And conversion, I think a good shorthand verse for the idea of conversion is what Paul said to the Thessalonians describing their conversion. He said, you turned from idols to serve the living God. You turned from idols to serve the living God. And as I think Ryan pointed out a few weeks ago, I believe that that's true for everyone who's converted, not just people that would have carvings and pagan deities and whatever, because as we know, the concept of idolatry in the New Testament is a lot broader than simply the pagan cult that might be dedicated to Isis or, or Hecate or one of these goddesses or gods, the concept of idolatry includes anything that would be taking the place that belongs only to God. Okay? God alone shall we worship and serve. God, who is the Creator, is worthy to be served on His terms by every one of His Creatures, by every human who's created in the image of God, God is worthy to be served. So whatever we were believing, whatever we were serving before we came to Christ through the gospel was some form of idolatry, whether we want to call it that or not, it really is. And so in that sense, repentance being like the term conversion and the word turn can be synonymous with repent, 
means to turn from idols to God and to do so on his terms. And that's what is important to understand about repentance. Now, Paul here is applying the term to Christians in the church. And he applied it to the Corinthians because there was a breakdown between Paul and the Corinthian church over some incident that was the subject of his sorrowful letter that was sent to them, but we don't have, and no one has. But evidently they had sided with a a fellow who was in serious error, and Paul wrote a very strong letter rebuking them for that. And, and if you've been here every week, then excuse me as I set the stage again. Some, some weren't. So what happened was the letter was sent to the Corinthians, and Titus was supposed to get back and, and hook up with Paul and bring a report about the letter. So Paul was in uh, great sorrow and anguish for fear that Titus will come back with a bad report and that the Corinthians had turned against him and and therefore against the gospel. But he finally did see Titus, and the report was that they had repented and that the the relationship between Paul and the church was on the mend. And so that caused Paul great rejoicing and great joy. And so what he's saying here in this section is, I felt bad that I made you sorrowful, but... I don't now because godly sorrow leads to repentance. And so therefore it was a good thing that they had become sorrowful because it led to their repentance. Now let's look at verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Now... Interestingly, it says leading to salvation. So one of the questions when we interpret this particular passage would be, since this is applied to the church, and since it was applied to Christians in Corinth, and that their repentance had to do with a specific issue, why is Paul saying here, he's broadening the idea of repentance to leading to salvation? In what regard does this have to do with salvation? Now, if you've been here for a while and you've heard us teach on this, then you realize that we believe in the security of the believer, but we also believe in the validity of the warnings. All right? And sometimes we get questions, and, and, and Dick, that radio show, I don't know if I sent those questions to you, but we did that radio show where we were just talking about assurance of salvation. And several people emailed me saying, well, are, do you say we can lose our salvation? What are you talking about? And so then i got to clarify it, so I don't know why it wasn't clear on the radio show. But the fact is, no, we're not believing that you're going to lose your salvation. But one of the means God uses to preserve his people from apostasy is the means of the warning against apostasy. Okay? And so it's a valid thing to be warned about the consequences of falling away from the living God. 
Okay? And, and, and if indeed we did apostatize, in other words, leave the faith, renounce Christ, and go back into pagan idolatry, we would be lost. I don't believe anybody living in pagan idolatry is saved. But I believe in the case of those who are truly the Lord's, when they read the passages in Hebrews and other ones, warning them about the dire consequences of apostasy, the Holy Spirit uses that Scripture to convict them and to pull them back from the precipice of dropping off the edge and pull them back into the church so that there's an effectual means that God uses by which he preserves us from apostasy. So therefore, I, I teach those verses seriously. So much so that some people think, well, maybe Pastor Bob doesn't believe in the security of the believer. No, I do believe in it, but he keeps us by scaring, as one brother said, the hellishness out of us. <laughs> okay, go ahead, Keith. <laughs> doesn't this also mean that when you look, you know, we see a circumstance on the outside, such as sorrow, something that's, that's sorrowful. I was thinking of Job. And until, you know, God sees the end from the beginning, but until we see the end and what that sorrow produces in somebody, mm-hmm. it's unclear to us what the issue, you know, what the status is, if you want to think of it that way. In other words, if I take your, your analogy or your, your concept there, a sorrow that does lead to apostasy would mean that that person initially had a false assurance and that the sorrow itself was the dividing point that manifested that false assurance and showed that that it was a, an apostate thing. Yeah. So that the, the circumstance itself, we can't discern whether it's for a bet, betterment or whether it's for a, a hardening, but the end determines... Or it becomes clear in the end, end yes. And that's a corollary, by the way, and there's an article on our CICministry.org website called Hebrews 6 on Apostasy that I wrote back in the 90s. That's my position on the issue. And I believe that there are true apostates, but they are people like Judas. Okay? Judas was an apostate. He actually left. Okay? But he had a devil from the beginning. In other words, I don't... The difference between Peter and, and Judas was that Peter really was the Lord's. And when he denied the Lord, he later found repentance. Judas was sorrowful. He threw the money, but he didn't repent. That's the, would, would, is that a correct way to say it? And, and that the whole concept, that's why false assurance or providing assurance to sinners that isn't based on the gospel is so damning because it actually bolsters their faith in something that they shouldn't have faith in to begin with. Mm-hmm. And false assurance, giving false assurance from the pulpit is like you're writing uh, is pastoral malpractice. Yes, that's going to be my next article for Christian Worldview Network. It's going to be called Pastoral Malpractice. And I'm going to make an analogy from the medical doctor. So I won't say any more. You can read it when it comes out. Now, um, False assurance is indeed a serious thing. Now, the problem, let's go back to the Corinthians. What, were, what was going on in Corinth that caused Paul to write 1 Corinthians, write 2 Corinthians, and in between write this severe letter? 
Well, as we've said several times, they were actually, some people in Corinth were claiming the right to go to the pagan temples and take meals in the context of idolatry and even participate in immorality with the pagans. Okay? So you can see why repentance leading to salvation, this is a salvation issue. You can't be practicing pagan idolatry and serving the Lord at the same time. So that's a repentance issue. And we've, we've seen that several times. So, yes, it's a repentance issue. And, yes, it's a salvation issue. And there's a lot of false assurance. There's a, I don't know if they have it on their website yet, but we did a DVD for the sold out for Jesus, uh, Rick Wagner and Martha and Sandy in that group that comes here. They produced a DVD where we talk about ten ways people have false assurance. And it came out really good. You might be interested in that. Yeah, it, it, I, I don't want to say anything good about myself, but uh, I can say God was being gracious that day because I don't, I don't remember being that cogent. <laughs> I was on fire, and I don't know how it happened, because we were just sitting up there in the sanctuary and shooting for three hours, and they're asking me questions, and I'm just talking. And they took that three hours, put in background stuff with scriptures and all the stuff going on, and and they distilled it down to an hour of very, very cogent question and answers about salvation and false assurance and stuff like that. So I, I really recommend that. Back to our passage, the sorrow according to the will of God, this is in contrast with worldly grief before, uh, produces repentance, okay, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, worldly grief is not the same thing as repentance. Worldly grief would be somebody being grieved over the consequences of what they did, but not the fact that they did it. Does that make sense? It's like somebody that steals a car, and it was a lot of fun until the cops catch them. Their grief is over the fact that the cops caught them, not that they stole the car, because they are a rebellious person and doing evil. So worldly grief does not lead to salvation. And it rarely even leads to anything changing. You know, people make New Year's resolutions and uh, decide they're going to be a better person or decide they're going to straighten out their act or decide they're going to be a better mom or they're going to be a better dad or they're going to be a better employee. And as is the case, most of the time not much changes. But when God gets a hold of somebody and we're convicted by the Holy Spirit who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, we are convicted over a lot more than just there were bad consequences for what I did. When the Holy Spirit convicts us, he convicts us about the fact that we're not right with God and that we're facing a holy God who's the just judge of the universe. Those terms, convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, have to are legal ideas. They're legal and there's a bar of justice, and, and we have to face that. And when we are convicted by the Holy Spirit, we realize that this grief is deeper than, well, I'm not, I haven't been a very good person. I should be better. It's that I'm in trouble with God, and I, and I need an escape from God's wrath against my sin. And then that is what leads to salvation. It's a conversion. Now, I was going to quote this uh, 
scholar Garland on this. He says, Godly grief differs from worldly grief in several ways. The first difference is what causes the grief. Worldly grief is caused by the loss or denial of something we want for ourselves. It is self-centered. It laments such worldly things as failing to receive the recognition one thinks one deserves, not having as much money as one wants, not getting something one covets. The kings of the earth weeping and mourning over the destruction of Babylon, terrified at her torment that will soon be befall them. The merchants of the earth weeping and mourning over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Revelation 18:9 through 11 are examples of worldly grief. That's a good example. Revelation 18. In fact, Robert, would you look that up? Let's just actually quote that. 9 through 11. So the Babylon in Revelation stands for the whole, it's, it, it has to do with Rome, but it, it's really an entire world system. Babylon is an entire world system of religion and of economics and of just a social world that's all one world government, Okay. Now, uh, I believe in literal Bible prophecy. And it's the only way the Bible makes sense to me. And I just don't get how some people can say Bible prophecy, all future Bible prophecy is not literally going to happen except for Christ is going to return. I don't get that. And I can't follow that. If I don't believe what it says about prophecy, then how do I get a different hermeneutic for that than I have for the rest of the Bible? But having said that, and um, I don't think any amillennialists are ever going to be very comforted here in our congregation. <laughs> they, they're not going to get any comfort from Ryan or I or Carl, I'll tell you that. Now the, but the Bible doesn't make sense unless you see the whole picture. What is Babylon? Where did Babel start? It started at the Tower of Babel in, in Genesis. And what was it about? It was about... Man's religious quest to have one world in unity, but not under God, not under his terms. And God thwarted that, and he's been thwarting it from that day till this one. God has been at work thwarting man's desire to have one global world under one leader, Antichrist. Now, the restraint will be removed, according to Thessalonians, and then the lawless one will be revealed. And the world is going to finally get the babble that they wanted, and they're going to have it for seven horrible years. They won't start out so bad, but the last three and a half are going to be God pouring out wrath in, in these bold judgments on, on the world. Now, after they want this so bad, if you want to just if, if you want to read Revelation from this perspective, that it's describing future events that will happen, you can see, for example, that a third of the earth is destroyed, and then it says, and they did not repent of their sorceries and their idolatry and their immorality. The Antichrist is going to give people what they wanted, so much so that they're willing to suffer misery to keep it. That's what's happening. Okay, now read the passage. It's Revelation 18, starting in verse 9. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, 
that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble. Yeah. Okay, so the, the sorrow of the world is weeping over not having the luxury that you wanted to have. Now, let me read it on with Garland here. The inventory of their cargo follows Revelation 12, 18, 12 through 13. And the last on the list are bodies, a normal word for slaves. Because of his Christian conviction, John goes on to identify them as the souls of men, as human beings, not living tools, as Aristotle classified slaves. These merchants are slave traders who are grief-stricken because they have nowhere to sell their cargo and make their heartless profits. By contrast, a wonderful example of godly grief was penned by the converted slave trader John Newton, who came to recognize and confess his wretchedness and blindness in the hymn Amazing Grace. Newton repented. Did you, anybody see that movie, Amazing Grace? That is one movie I can recommend. And my favorite line is, and I've said this before, my favorite line in a movie is at the end where this guy, now blind, an old man in a church, says, I know two things. One, I'm a great sinner. And two, Christ is a greater Savior. <laughs> Boy, that's... that's that's a good lesson to learn, and if you haven't learned it yet, I pray that you do soon. I, we have to understand that. So, the second difference, the difference between worldly grief and godly sorrow, the second difference involves its results. The selfishness of worldly grief gives rise only to despair, bitterness, and paralysis. It causes our souls to drown in self-pity or turns the sorrow into a cancerous sore or cankerous sore. Many lead lives filled with regrets like Esau's when he sold his birthright. Judas was overcome with grief by his betrayal of his master, but it led to despair and a desperate act of taking his own life, not to repentance. Godly grief, on the other hand, leads to repentance. And the results of repentance are the fact that we are partakers of salvation. Now, does repentance ever apply to Christians? Yes, it does. Christians can get off track, can believe false teachings, can engage in sinful behaviors, and indeed can be convicted and called to repent. And this particular incident in Corinthians was indeed applied to Christians. So repentance is an important idea in the New Testament, and one of the ways that people are peddling false assurance is through redefining repentance to mean no more than changing of one's thinking about something or now thinking true thoughts about Jesus. No more than that. And that's not correct definition. Yes? Uh, wouldn't one of the applications of this verse be that we see a brother in sin, we need to confront him about it so he can have this godly sorrow and repent? Yes, that's, that's the whole point of church discipline. Okay? In, in, in uh, Matthew chapter 18... If someone is a member of the body of Christ and they're overtaken with a sin that's bringing 
damage to them and shame to the body of Christ. And someone goes to them and to try to save a soul from death. It says in um, is it James where he, he converts a sinner from the error of his way, uh, saves a soul from death and covers a multitude of sins. So it's a very, and that's the same phrase that says love covers a multitude of sins. So it's a loving, church discipline is a loving thing. It's not something we ever want to do or look forward to doing, but sometimes it has to be because of Christian love. And so, therefore, we go with the assumption that someone truly does know the Lord, the Holy Spirit is helping in this process to convict the person. Okay? And that once the church, a person goes to them, they may repent, then you won your brother. If not, you, you, you go to them and deal with them, and eventually it goes to the church and so on. That's church discipline. But a repentance would be the desired outcome of such a process, that a person would repent and now return to the walk in the Lord that God desires for them. And so that's what Paul was contending for concerning the Corinthians. I'm going to also quote uh, Barnett. Barnett, I have a couple of quotes in here. So I got the right page, 378, yes. He says this, But repentance towards Paul, God's co-worker and Christ's ambassador, 520 and 61, and therefore repentance towards God confirmed the Corinthians in their salvation. In line with his pastoral method employed in this and other letters, Paul is by this statement reinforcing his readers in appropriate attitudes, in this case, godly grief that produces repentance without regret leading to salvation. There's no regret when, when God works repentance in the heart of a person. There's no, re, there's no regret. I've never regretted being converted. Has anybody? Absolutely not. The only thing I regret is it didn't happen earlier. I should have listened to that Sunday school teacher when I was 11 who told me I need to be born again. I didn't know what she was talking about, and I didn't ask any more questions. But I had a, I, a, when I was saved, I started to look back, and I was thinking, well, somebody should have preached this to me before. You know, I'd been in a, you know, I started thinking about blaming others. That it, it took me till I was 20 to get saved. And so I was thinking, well, you know, I was in a liberal church and a pastor didn't believe the Bible and they didn't preach the gospel and so on, which was all true. But then I, my mind went back and the Lord brought my mind back and said, wait, no, 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 no. You heard that was a Sunday school teacher and it came right back into my mind where I was sitting when a Sunday school teacher told me I needed to be born again. And I, I remember that. And my mind went back to watching Billy Graham on TV preach the gospel. And, and I remember Billy Graham talking about the fact that you could know that you were saved and could know that you were going to heaven. And, and I remember the words, as a matter of fact, and I misunderstood them. I remember Billy Graham, this would have been about in 1961, 62. I remember him saying, I know that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. And, and my misinterpretation was, well, I suppose if I was Billy Graham, I'd probably be going to heaven too. <laughs> I figured he's probably going to make it. I don't know about anybody else. But the fact is, we don't have any regrets for having been converted if we know the Lord, because what, we've got everything. We've got riches, and they go on for all eternity. We have the fruit of the Spirit now, love, joy, peace, and we have the assurance of salvation, 
and we have all eternity to enjoy the Lord and all the redeemed throughout the ages that will be gathered together in the end. Okay, let's look at Hebrews. Let's all turn to Hebrews 12. I want to point out this uh, passage that one of the scholars referenced because it's a very good example of uh, the two different types of repentance, Jacob's and Esau's. Here it says in verse 15 of Hebrews 12, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. Now, that passage troubled me the first so many times I read it when I was in Bible college. And only recently, reading a commentary by William Lane, did I come to what I felt like was a very satisfactory understanding of the text. And I made a whole DVD based on that text called The Selling of Our Evangelical Birthright. Now, the reason Esau's sin was so egregious was that he wasn't just giving up his personal blessings. He was giving up the messianic promises that were invested in the patriarchs. Because in the seed of Abraham, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And God will bless those who bless you, uh, you, know, uh, bless you and curse those who curse you, Genesis 12:3. And so the promises were invested in Abraham, Isaac, Esau, no. Well, we don't say Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. And the Bible later doesn't say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. And the reason it doesn't say that is Esau sold his birthright. He was despising God's covenant promises. That's what he was despising. And that's the reason it's called immoral. The word for immoral there means secular. Secular. Uh, irreligious. And he was, he was despising what God promised, and so really there's a sin of unbelief there that he doesn't believe the promises of God, and he was only concerned with his gratification of his hunger at the moment. And so the birthright is the, is the promise of messianic salvation, and that's what he sold, and that's what he was unable to get back. He felt sorry later, but he did not find true repentance. Yes. That's basically what I was going to say. It looks like he desired to inherit the blessing. That was his motivation. Yeah, he, he had bad... Yeah, later he, he said, oh, yeah, I think that blessing would have been a good thing because he heard his father bless Jacob with these blessings. And then he asked if he had any left for him. And remember what he got? It wasn't very good. It was very unfavorable what, what, uh, J, what Jacob uh, pronounced over him. is a, a very, very unfavorable. So he was... Unhappy, and, and that's where the sorrow and the tears came. But he, he did not have any way back because he put himself outside of the covenant prophecies. So that's why this is a warning against apostasy in Hebrews. Now, the application I made of that on that DVD is this: that as evangelicals, the word evangelical comes from the word euangelion in the Greek, that means evangel or gospel, right? So what is it that we have that would be our birthright? Well, it's the terms of the new covenant. 
Esau rejected the terms that were laid out in the Old Covenant, the promises that would be to Abraham and Isaac and the descendants. He rejected the terms because he'd rather have the, the, the stew. The terms that we have that, that God has given us graciously, and, and if we're going to call ourselves evangelicals, the one thing that we have are the terms of the covenant. Well, what's the terms of the new covenant? What's the blood atonement? Is it, and that's all through the book of Hebrews, that Jesus' blood was shed once for all, and that we have a great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, who ever lives to make intercession for us, who is seated at the right hand of God, and we have these blessed privileges to go to the throne of grace, to know that our sins are washed away, and to have the terms to proclaim to everyone else. We're the ones that God has entrusted with the message of salvation to bring to the whole world. And to sell that out because we wanted other things is apostasy. And so I think it's a valid application. It's a very valid application is that when we sell out the terms of the covenant, not because we want to deny them, but because we're not wanting to preach them from the pulpit lest someone might be offended, I don't believe we have the right to do that. And so repentance would be in order. Repentance would be in order for any who's sold out the covenant. So, uh, yes. The whole book of Obadiah. There's a whole book in the Old Testament that's dedicated to to prophesying against Edom and against Esau's mm-hmm. descendants. So the whole there's a whole prophet God's raised up that's toward the end of this whole period, and it stand, and it's, the whole book ends this way: the deliverers ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Yeah. So that judge was, Esau. So it's a contrast that's carried right Yeah, the whole book, yeah, that's true. The whole book is rebuking Esau and his descendants. I just want to give a short personal testimony. I thought that I was being rebellious in my college years, about my sophomore year, when I went home and I was scared to do it, but I looked at my father and mother in the eye and I said, I don't believe in God. And But I think that was apostate, because I was definitely the Lord's own. I've been a believer since they took me to Sunday school. But what I just noted earlier, when you were reading from the commentators, I think it was Lane especially, um, I wrote down, just for myself to remember here in my notes, that my parents, I believe today, prayed me back (laughs) into repentance. And so... um, it was all them in the grace of God. Yeah, amen. Let's go to verse 11. For behold, what earnestness, this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong, and everything you demonstrated yourself to be innocent in the matter. Now, it means, doesn't mean here that they were always innocent. But they have become that way through repentance because once we repent, everything's washed away by the blood of Jesus. And we are new creatures, as we said earlier when we were studying 2 Corinthians 5. It's absolutely true. The slate is washed clean. All of our sin is borne by Jesus, the sinless one. And we receive the imputed, that's legal terminology Paul uses in Romans, 
the imputed righteousness of Christ. His righteousness is put into our account and our sins are borne by the sinless one who shed his blood to pay the penalty for all and every sin. So you, you by repentance, the result is innocence. Now we have here a list of qualities, uh, seven qualities here, separated in the Greek by an adversive, which Allah in the Greek means but, in a contrastive way, and it's repeated every time. What earnestness has produced in you, when it says what, that's Allah, but vindication, but indignation, but fear, but longing, but zeal, and it's kind of a very striking the way it, it comes out in the Greek. And now one of the scholars says the way to translate it probably is not only so, but. Not only so, but. So you have this quality. Now, what are the seven qualities? The first one is earnestness. And before it says that, it uses this word behold. And you've probably seen that, especially in the Gospels. That's a Hebraic way of calling attention. Behold means take note, this is important. Behold what manner of love the Father has given us. You know how you read that in the Bible. So it says take note, behold. That's what that word means. Here's the seven things. Earnestness, vindication, indignation, fear, longing, zeal, and avenging. Those are the seven um, things that are produced by godly grieving. All seven are what repentance that leads to salvation looks like. So uh, these, these are things that God had done that caused the, these Corinthians to change in their status vis-a-vis Paul and, therefore, the gospel. Now, let me quote this Barnett again. Paul here conveys the powerful impression of a rapid and dramatic reaction in Corinth to his severe letter as brought by Titus. His interjection, look, suggests the liveliness of the imagined scene in the church. Then the first of the seven words is preceded by what? Earnestness, followed by six, followed the following six by not only so, but. On each occasion, translating the single word but. Thus creating an ascending climatic effect from the initial word. The significance of the word earnestness or eagerness is seen not only from its appearance as the first in the list, but also from its repetition in the next verse. Therefore, each subsequent word is strong and vivid, painting its own picture of animated reactions among the Corinthians, <laughs> then he says, whose force the NIV tends to blur. I, 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 that is the funniest thing to me. Now, don't feel bad if you use the NIV. That's between you and the Lord. If you want to use the NIV, you, you may. Some people like to read it. But because it is the number one selling Bible in America, the commentary series are based on it. Okay? Even some good critical ones like this. And by the way, critical in scholarship isn't a bad thing. It's like critical thinking. That's good, not bad. Okay? It's something we lack. I was talking to someone about that this morning before church. It seems like the whole world lacks the ability to do critical thinking anymore. 
And so they just were mesmerized by ideas that are just not valid. Now, it's funny how often you read one of these critical commentaries based on the NIV, and then verse after verse, they have to correct the NIV. You would think, you would think that the commentary, in a sense, would become bad advertising for the NIV. <laughs> well, but curiously, they say the NIV left this out. Curiously, the, they, they translate it this way. Curiously, they blurted. It really doesn't mean this. It's just not very strong. But again, if you like it, God bless you. <laughs> Maybe you want, might want to get a side-by-side parallel so you could compare. Yes? What's the translation the commentary is based on? NIV, New International Version. Well, the better ones, in my opinion, are the New American Standard. No, they just make their own translation from the Greek. Yeah, they, a good critical commentary will always have its own translation from the original language and or at least discussion of the issues. When it comes to Bible translations, of course, you know I like the New American Standard, but I'm telling you with this Logos Bible software where I continually compare many versions, and I'm going to use one in my sermon today, I am kind of shocked about some, some of the ones that turn out to be the most literal. Sometimes it really surprises me. And you know the one that's been coming up literally accurate in my own study that surprises me is the new RSV. And I would never think of the, of, of the RSV as always was known as the liberal Bible when I was a kid because they had this young woman instead of virgin in, in Isaiah. But the new RSV is amazingly literal, uh, way more so in some cases than the New American Standard. I'm not saying I'm switching to it, but I'm just kind of surprised to see that. Uh, it's, it's a better translation than I would have thought it was. So give credit where credit is due. Now, he goes on and says this, It appears that until the arrival of Titus in the severe letter, the Corinthians had not understood how serious the matter was from Paul's perspective. I, th- I think that's a very good point. You would think they would just get it. Okay? You would think, okay, going down to the temple and having meals in, in the context of an, of an idolatrous worship immorality with the pagans, you would think, obviously, they just get it. And all that Paul has to do is write the first letter and say the people that do these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 6, and 1 Corinthians 10, you're, you, remember your fathers, remember the forefathers, they came out of the Exodus, 1 Corinthians 10, they were baptized in the water and in the cloud, or in the sea and in the cloud, and they came out, and then God was unpleased with them and destroyed them because of their idolatry. You're doing the same thing. They still didn't get it. Uh, because sin has a hardening or a deadening uh, effect on the human conscience. And in the, in the, especially in the case of, of the Corinthians, their former pagan lives had been so given over to debauchery that they took in a religious context that their consciences were seared with a hot iron, and just Paul saying, don't do this, didn't evoke much of a response, at least as far as dealing with church discipline within the Corinthian church. Because they were told there, in First Corinthians 5, that they needed to discipline this one guy. Okay? And they didn't want to do it. And so, if this recreation of the situation is correct, what happened was, Paul got really angry when he found out they hadn't really repented. And he wrote wrote this so-called severe letter, and whatever was in it, 
I mean, he unloaded both barrels if he had a double-barrel shotgun. I mean, he just said, in whatever uncertain terms, this is wicked, this is terrible, God is going to judge you, whatever he said in there. And then he was afraid, oh man, I said it's so strong, they may just leave and I may lose them for good. And Titus comes back and says they repented. It's sort of like a kid that doesn't listen to his parents until all of a sudden they really get mad. So, oh, I think Dad's mad. I think I better listen. Okay, yes. I think that it's hard for us to imagine because the cultural norms are so strong that that was everybody was doing it. So what Paul was telling him was so abnormal. Maybe we have some kind of concept of pedophiles today that would shock people in our culture, but if if we had something that's so endemic that everybody's yeah. doing it yeah. and to have it be a Christian issue it was hard for them to conceive that immorality was really that bad because they always practiced it their parents had practiced it, their cousins and no, uh, the good people, the bad people everybody practiced yeah. it and now this is something that's so unique how could Paul be right against everybody else and everything that they practice and now we're Christians and we're doing this it was a syncretism yeah. that it was very difficult for them uh, yeah that's true and you can see that issue coming up in the churches in Revelation that there were false prophets who actually were willing to put gods in primitor is that how you pronounce that yeah, what do you know imprimatur I can see the word in my mind Maybe I shouldn't use words I don't know how to pronounce, right? It seemed like a good word, though. God's stamp of approval. There, I'd say that. They False Jezebel or the false Nicolaitans or some of these people in, in the Church's Revelation are saying, this is okay. They're actually, in the name of God, telling the church it's okay to, to partake, partake in these pagan practices. And so that's, the, that's what a false prophet looks like. And the true prophet says, no, this is a wicked sin against God, and it's one that has eternal consequences. Yeah. Isn't this largely a matter of sanctification, this issue? And you can see it uh, even in the Christian community today. They haven't been in the Word enough. They're biblically illiterate a lot of times. And, uh, and you know, there's other smaller issues. They aren't as great as those issues as far as visibly. But, um, you know, Paul was sanctified. They weren't, wouldn't that? Yeah, exactly. And sanctify them in the Word, thy Word is truth. Sanctification is something that happens by grace, right? By grace. Salvation is by grace. Sanctification is by grace. And when God does something, he uses means, right? Someone called me yesterday and said, well, how can the doctrine of election be true? Then why preach the gospel? And I said, well, no, the doctrine of election is true. So preach the gospel, why? Because then you know God is going to save people out of the mass of perdition, and, and you know that he's going to do it, and that's his means. The gospel is the means of way by which God saves who he saves. And uh, the same with sanctification. There are means. The, now, maybe it's hard to believe our culture is pretty perverse, but it was actually worse in Asia Minor in the first century. And I've read some quotes from Roman historians and what have you that, in a Roman society, a nobleman having a mistress was considered the norm. It wasn't even something you would blush about. Of course he has concubines. Of course he has mistresses. And uh, if somebody said, oh, that's a scandal. So we could be thankful that if somebody running for office does that today, we consider it a scandal. 
We can be thankful that we live in a country where they consider it a scandal. In Rome, no, so no, that's not a scandal. It's just what, the way men are. It's just what they do. So Paul, bringing the gospel into the Gentiles in the book of Acts, is going into a place where uh, the Jews said, well, we've got to make them be circumcised and keep the food laws. So they gathered in Rome in Acts 15 in, in Jerusalem and said, no, but we've got to keep them from idols and from immorality. Okay, that's the issue. That's a sin issue. That's, that's their rebellion. So the Gentiles must abstain from idols. Uh, what was it? Four things. Blood, things strangled, idols, immorality. Am I right? There are four on the list. Okay, that we've got to deal with. And Paul did deal with it, but it was a battle, especially in Corinth. Because if they fail to do church discipline, and there are people who are claiming a right to do that and to stay in Christian fellowship, then the gospel's threatened. The gospel's threatened because then the whole church is saying, this is not a gospel issue. It's not an issue of salvation or sanctification. And Paul says, it is. It is. You shall not inherit the kingdom. Yes. And part of what happens on this issue of sanctification, if you refuse to be sanctified and refuse to have the means of grace work in your life, then you're going back to verse 10 where godly sorrow doesn't work repentance and it's an evidence that you're actually an apostate and not one that's embraced the kingdom of God because you're refusing to abide by the rule of the kingdom of God as it comes and uh, applies itself to your life. Amen. Amen. So sanctification is a very, very important issue, and it comes by means. I was talking about means. Um, the Word of God is a sanctifying agent. All right? And sitting under clear Bible teaching works grace into our hearts and minds. And what happens, and I bet you just about everybody here could say this is true, that when you are a new Christian, you think, well, how's, I'm kind of a mess. I wonder how all this is ever going to change. But don't you know that if you sit under clear, sound Bible teaching, God starts changing you? And pretty soon you're not doing what you did before, and you're not saying what you said before, and you be all of a sudden you're actually, not all of a sudden, but, wow, I'm actually... You know, my wife might actually be blessed that she married me someday. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> yes, Carla. I, I've just been struck lately by the reality that as humans, our default isn't to understand God's standards. If we just were left to our own without the scriptures, we don't comprehend what his standards are, what's right and what's wrong. And it's by sitting underneath the scriptures uh-huh. and, under, and, and being taught by them that we really come to a greater understanding of what he requires of us and what, what he considers good and what he considers evil. And, and even as you grow in maturity, there's always more to understand that you don't understand. And it's, yeah. it's not like we understand everything now. There's always more that you can dig in and comprehend more fully what it means to be righteous before him and what, it, what he yes. considers as good and evil. You know, remember that uh, article that I recommended by Jerry Bridges called Gospel-Driven Sanctification? He made some very good points in there. There's something, the fact is that the more we actually grow in sanctification, the less we feel like we really are sanctified. 
And he talks about that in there. Now, why is that? Because the more mature you are as a Christian, the more you understand how holy God really is. And I, when that John Newton says, I only know two things, that I'm a great sinner and Christ is a greater Savior, we might think, well, is that just because he was a new Christian? No. That's because he really understands. That's the pinnacle of understanding. And that's where you end up, knowing that you're a great sinner. But the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, nor can he understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Yes, exactly. So it doesn't even make sense. That's, in a sense, that's what this thing means when it talks about not throwing pearls before swine. You can't disciple the unconverted, right? It's not possible. You can't make a disciple out of the unconverted. Okay, Nancy. Just a, just a thought. Um, speaking on the Gentiles to be observing only four things, and I, I think that might be the immaturity of them too because as the sanctification grows, we're drawn to obey and we're drawn to keep the law. And they didn't want to put that on them because they weren't ready to do that, but well, they were the grace. I'm saying that's one. But uh, yeah, but, no, but they never. those things are never put on uh, under the New Covenant. In other words, the food laws no, I understand are never that. on. Okay. The, the okay. legalism, but we still have Ten Commandments. Well, well, actually, everything in the New Covenant that's written is binding. Okay? So those, that summary were the basic issues facing the Gentiles. But well, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, whatever he wrote, it's all binding because it came right from God. Right. And so when he says not to be... Uh, greedy, I mean, that's binding. Everything is binding to God's said. So those four were kind of the big, the biggies that they wanted to deal with right up front there. Yes? Uh, I guess I just was thinking of a verse when Carlo was talking that um, I love how Scripture not only makes its own claims but then covers itself. Um, in Hebrews 4, verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living and active, Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Amen. It says it right there. Okay. Now, let me give a quick application to that. That, what we're talking about now, salvation through the gospel and sanctification through the means of grace, primary one being the word of God, is exactly why... The Bible must be interpreted clearly and accurately and applied in a legitimate manner. And that's what my article is going to be about. It's already in my mind. I just got to write it. Let's just make an analogy. If you went to a doctor, now this is based on the idea that your soul is more important than your body. Your soul is eternal. We're going to get a new resurrection body, but the, the soul is far more important. But what if you went to a doctor... And you had a doctor that believed in the allegorical method of reading medical journals. All right. And you had a seeker-sensitive doctor that wanted his patients to always be happy. And so he changed the terms and said things so they'd sound pretty good. And didn't take everything literally uh, and just was kind of loosey-goosey as far as applying medical science to his patients. Would you go to that doctor? Well, of course you would not. 
Now, I want to assert that your soul is even more important. So would you go to a pastor who took the Bible allegorically rather than literally, who didn't apply directly what it says, even if it's hard to hear, like it means we need to repent, and who doesn't interpret things the way God said it, but sort of uses paraphrases and loose analogies and nice little skits and ditties and what have you, would you go to that pastor? Now, I want to say, good. Thank you, Cheryl. I, I want to say this. If it's malpractice for a doctor to do that, which it would be, it's malpractice for a pastor to do it. So we need people to own up to pastoral malpractice and repent. Bill. You just described psychology to a T, and in the 80s, uh, uh, there was a challenge between the pastors and uh, secular psychology. And there was uh, probably thousands of pastors that went out and got psychological degrees and counseling degrees, and they incorporated Freudian, Jungian, and other uh, psychological techniques and brought it right into the church. And people do exactly what you said they wouldn't do. They go into a church, they pay the pastor and, uh, and whatever to get counseling based upon these secular techniques, based upon allegory. It's done every single yeah. day. Yeah, I know. I know. So that's why we got a crisis in the church. We're not teaching the Word. Now, the Word is sharper than any two-edged sword, and may God pierce my heart with it and the hearts of all of us so that we might be sanctified, so we might be wise, that we might be able to live in a, in a very dangerous spiritual world out here, but yet be preserved blameless because God is working graciously. So we'll see you upstairs at 10.30. God bless.